What I remember of what I read then is that like the authorities were like, we don't believe you that your actors are still alive. This film is so scary <laughs> and so convincing that you have to bring them like before a judge or something so we can verify that you didn't kill them. And I was like, that sounds great. Sarah Marshall, who needs no introduction, is the host of our sibling podcasts, You're Wrong About and You Are Good, and is also an expert on satanic panic in all its myriad forms. A few years ago, Sarah also put out an episode about snuff films that discussed similar history and themes, but also went into some territory that we haven't covered yet. Today, we discuss the decade that produced these urban legends, the other horror movies that added to the lore, and the way this tale continues to express itself today on the World Wide Web. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Chelsea Weber-Smith. I almost just went, hello, Alex Steed, out of sheer <laughs> muscle memory. We're kindred spirits, right? We love Alex Steed here. And yeah. hi, Miranda. Hi, hello. Miranda's joining us today as we come together to discuss one of the most important topics of the day, snuff yes. films. Are they real? Are they not? Um, they're not. What if we were the real snuff films all along, Chelsea? <laughs> what if it was the snuff films we made along the way? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we can laugh about it because it's not real, right? But exactly. Um, so Miranda and I both listened to the snuff film episode that you did a zillion years ago on You're Wrong About. And I know that was one of your earlier episodes, which leads me to think because of my own show, you know, you load a lot of the important ones up front, kind of like mm -hmm. the structural foundational things right. that, that come into your head, like right away. So what about snuff films? Like what was your journey to deciding that you wanted to talk about something like snuff films so in depth? What a great question. Yeah, because it is the early ones. I don't know if you do this, but I have had this thing of like, there's a kind of category of topic where you're like this is important to me to talk about like I have like a fire in my belly to discuss this thing and tell people that they're wrong about it but also like it's not so dear to my heart that it's intimidating which is why I saved talking about Tanya Harding until like episode 50. <laughs> so this is right in that sweet spot of like it's important to me but it's not too important to me. But I think I must have first read about the concept of snuff films on the straight dope, which is where I probably got most of my 20th century history when I was growing up. I read the web archives. It was a newspaper column, but it wasn't published in physical form where I was living. But I was obsessed with the web archive of the straight dope when I was probably 14. Did either of you ever read that? I don't think so. No, I, I feel like it's like a vague glimmer of a memory, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize the name. Tell us about it, Stead. It was a legendary uh, newspaper column that also became like a web community as well. It had message boards, which I was never active on, but I think I believe are still going. And it originated as a column where people would write to Cecil Adams, who I think was kind of this composite idea person with persistent questions in their lives. And they had episodes like, is there a secret message a subliminal code broadcast in this episode of Moonlighting, which took months to figure out and turned out to be because there was like a flaw in 
the person's videotape home recording of it where they had taped over a different tape that had something else on it. And that was where they thought the secret code was coming from. Or another legendary column was like, what is that tree in Los Angeles that smells like semen? (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things people wrote in about and that got addressed in the column was, are there snuff films? And my understanding of the phenomenon of snuff originally, which is held true, is that we're not just talking about footage of people dying because especially now. I mean, I don't think a day goes by without footage being generated that captures someone's death. And something I didn't talk about in that episode is just what that phenomenon means for life today. But specifically, it was this idea that emerged in the 70s that there was, in fact, this lucrative, secret, fairly widely distributed world of snuff movies, which were these Pretty, I think the understanding was that they were professionally made by film crews, like presumably union people. (laughs) (laughs) At least we can hope. The Snuffsters Union, who would make these movies where people would actually get murdered and then that they would be widely distributed and consumed, like secretly, but widely, and that there was a lot of money in it. And this was the specific thing that Second wave feminists protested in the 1970s, kind of adjacent to and wrapped up within the anti-porn movement. And the people who seemed most passionate about snuff as a scourge of the modern world could also not produce at any time a viable example of it, which, dun-dun-dun, is very similar, Chelsea, to our shared love, The Satanic Panic. I mean, they're definitely uh, kissing cousins, I would say. (laughs) They kiss each other and then they stab each other. And then they film it. (laughs) So do you think that the fact that this was one of those weird times when feminists joined up with right-wing Christians over a panic that reminded you of the satanic panic and kind of kept you going on this path? So it's funny, I learned, I heard about snuff first and the kind of panic over snuff films first. And then I think the satanic panic, when I learned about it, actually maybe slotted into my brain and made sense to me better than it would have if I hadn't heard about snuff before, because Hmm. it was this sort of smaller scale example that had happened immediately before the satanic panic took off in the US. I mean, it almost feels like a dress rehearsal in retrospect, right? Because it's like, You have the same bedfellows of like women's lib and the Christian right who are uniting to fight against this imaginary enemy. In this case, it didn't lead to the actual prosecution of actual queer people. So it didn't have legs, I guess. So one of the things that you talk about in your snuff film and that we kind of center our whole episode. (laughs) In my snuff film that I made. My very own snuff film. I finally did it. (laughs) My very special snuff film. What I meant to say is you talked about the fake snuff film Snuff, the movie that a lot of feminists protested. I assume you watched it, Sarah, at least the clipped on added ending. I've never been able to find the ending to watch. I like did that episode without having seen the ending. So have you seen it? Yes. And (gasps) it is. Is it good? It's not good. Like, it's not good to the point where it like the blood looks like orange 
house paint. Oh, come on, you guys. It's really bad. Put your backs into it. (laughs) It's so bad that it's really difficult to imagine that anybody could have mistook that for actual death. However, when I started thinking about it, I started thinking about how only around the time of Vietnam were Americans getting used to actually seeing gore. It's like we almost could fall for something more when we hadn't seen real depictions of death as often as we would right during mm. the Vietnam War. Yeah, I wonder about like like at the moment that death left the American home, did it reappear in media for many reasons, but perhaps partly as compensation. Because something I think about a lot is how, like, I have never seen a dead body in my life. And if I were growing up a hundred years ago, I think I would see quite a few dead people, not to put too fine a point on it, if only because it was typical until very recently that if you had a family member who died, they would die at home, you would be there with them, and then you would have a wake and you would have probably an open casket in your house. Mm -hmm. The dead used to be much closer to us. So I feel as if this feels like part of this process in which death starts becoming something that we only witness when it's happening in the most horrific way possible and through a screen a lot of the time. Totally. I do feel like this veers into terror management theory territory, Mm. which is like we suppress death so much as a culture that we compensate for it. This is like a theory that was posited in a book called The Worm at the Core. Hmm. And they did like years of studies about how if you're not familiar with death and you don't accept it in general, then when you're presented with it, you get more closed-minded and you hold more tightly to your belief systems and cultural values to the point where you can cause harm to perceived others. I just I've been thinking about this so much with snuff film stuff and with like rotten.com and like we want to deny the fact that we're animals and Mm. that we're going to die. And then, you know, they did a study where they had control groups of judges who had to sentence uh, an accused sex worker and the judges who were presented with thoughts of their own death before they did the sentencing would impose harsher sentences because of their perceived cultural values. It's like hundreds of studies like this, and it's really fascinating. And I think about that in the ways that we are presented with death, because you're right, it is like the absolute worst of it in these like really confusing settings. (laughs) I love that you have connected increased death literacy with like the idea of having, you know, a better legal system, essentially, like Mm -hmm. not in necessarily the most radical way, but by degrees, you know, I mean, that makes me think of climate change as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're waking up and you're being told pretty early in the day that like you're fucked, basically, like Mm -hmm. you're like the, you know, a big acronym had their big meeting and they've released numbers that <laughs> confirm that we're fucked. So deal with that. <laughs> like, Goodbye and good luck. Yeah. So what do we do about that? 
So speaking of sort of terror management theory, thank you, terror management theory correspondent Miranda. Yes, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) She's always popping with terror management theory in our life together. And I love it. There's no answers. It's just something to think about. No, there's no answers. There's just terror management theory. (laughs) Kind of like a random audit. Like you're getting irritable at Ikea and you're like, wait a minute. I'm going to die. (laughs) To me, that's very helpful. Yeah, that's right. Something I learned about you, Sarah, during the Snuff Films episode, too, was that you, and I know I've heard you talk about this before, but it's just such a a lovely part of who you are in your history, is that you put yourself through an exhaustive horror movie course when you were, (laughs) what, 18? Is that right? Like 16, 16. I think. 16. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Man, I wish we could have hung out in high school. All of I us. I know. <laughs> would have been nice. God. We would have watched a lot of Faces of Death. Yes. Actually, I don't know if we would have watched Faces of Death together or not. No, but we would have watched something else. <laughs> we would have watched Tenebrae or something. <laughs> yeah, or Cannibal Holocaust, I guess, which yes. we'll get into. We would have watched that. <laughs> we, we and then have. we would have agreed to never speak of it again, but we would then speak of it now. <laughs> yeah. I know what you did last summer, Chelsea. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So one of those films that you watched was Faces of Death, which is a huge part of the snuff legend that we just didn't get into. So would you talk a little bit about Faces of Death, your experience with it, and kind of the reality versus what we thought it was? Yeah. So Faces of Death, I remember there being... A faces of death section at movie madness when I would go there as a teenager and I would always like look at it and be like no and then rent something else and faces of death I think of as kind of a rite of passage for teenage boys like if you don't get to become bat mitzvah then faces of death is the next best thing that the wasp bat mitzvah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> And the conceit is that it's like all this footage of people dying. And, you know, I think you're explicitly encouraged to think like, oh, man, it's snuff movies. They killed people to make these anthology movies. And it's meant to be that. And what you end up with is essentially this collection of assembled news footage. So there's, you know, the aftermath of a cyclist being killed on a highway There was an incident where they were filming for this movie on a beach and there happened to be a corpse and they didn't plan for that to happen. But, you know, it's like a combination of very cheesy simulated death scenes, including diners eating a monkey's brain a la Temple of Doom (laughs) and actual sort of news slash medical footage. I mean, it's like the internet before there was the internet, I would say. It's like a night on Wikipedia made in 1978. And I felt watching it like I was holding hands with like all of the 14-year-old boys that had gone before me. And to me, it's like, I don't know, like it's a very gross enterprise, right? Like it's it's a gross thing to do. It's gross and I, as I describe it that way. But I also, as I'm kind of taking this zoomed out view of it, I feel like the fact that it's so popular in my experience among teenagers, it's not like a film that you watch to like have a great time. I think for the most part, I think the idea is that you're, it's kind of a dare. Mm-hmm. It seems like a way to feel like you are confronting something 
And mm-hmm. I did feel like that watching it. I feel I, I mean, I was thinking the other day, it's this thing of like horror movies seem to be a little bit unique in terms of finances, right? Because they pretty much always make money. Like they always make a lot of money and you tend to not get a gigantic return for your investment if you finance one. But like we've always made a lot of them. There have always been a lot of little horror movies that come out every year that somebody threw money at and probably got some money back. I feel like they really need to throw that money at us. I don't know (laughs) where that money's going, but it should be coming over here. That's the thing. Just like throw me some beads. We're at Mardi Gras. But but like I feel like that's because like horror movies, like they usually work. If you're like, we're going to see the drama about the married people that are passive aggressive, you're like, I could enjoy that. And it could just be literally a waste of my time. And with a horror movie, like if it's scary to me at all, which most people are at least a little bit scared by most horror movies, they haven't done the like film equivalent of like burning off the tips of their fingers in a hot kitchen like people who watch too many horror movies (laughs) do like I do they usually like something happens to your body like there is some kind of effect and I that's my current theory raises your temperature yeah that's what Carmen Maria Machado said when when we interviewed her I like a year ago or something is that she likes to watch things that raise her temperature it was like right that's it. yep that's it so like horror usually works in some fashion sexy movies whether you know they're like actual porn the snuff of erotica or <laughs> like <laughs> you know like kind of softcore late night stuff like yeah they're like in the genre of film that like it might not be highbrow but like it will do some kind of a job and um yeah, speaking of terror management, like we can never quite get away from it. I feel like Faces of Death is just squarely within that. And I, I don't know, I, I like look on it very fondly at this point as like a way for people to try and get past this very censorious culture that says there must be something wrong with you if you want to see what happens when you die. Mm-hmm. And also something that makes it different when you look back on it is the knowledge that so much of it is not real, right? Because it's very much marketed as real. Do you have any idea kind of like what's real, what's not, what percentage of it is real? Give us like your best faces of death breakdown. So I think that anything purporting to depict someone actually dying was faked. There could be exceptions to that, but I think that the general way it went was that you ended up with like actual aftermath footage and generally faked footage of like death happening, which is an interesting distinction. And also just trying to research that, it also seems important to mention that the movie appears to have been made for half a million dollars and made tens of millions, like $35 million. And it was also banned, right, in a lot of places, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then we were going through like the video nasty phase in the UK, which was based on the idea that murder was caused by, you know, the evil dead. Video nasties is just one of my favorite names. It's a great phrase. It's what I call Chelsea. (laughs) (laughs) Get over here, you video nasty. (laughs) No, don't. Um, The other one that we have talked about, Cannibal Holocaust. Yes. Okay. Were you into Italian horror movies when you were a teenager, generally? I did not have that refined of a palette, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like Dario Argento? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I was into Suspiria and stuff. Yes. 
The first yes. big girl horror movie I ever saw was Suspiria. And I like, I will never get back to that high in a way. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I remember watching it with my best friend and just like clinging to each other, like the first oh. 15 minutes. And we also thought it was really funny because the dubbing is really intense. And I remember uh -huh. I made like mixtapes for people that had like dialogue because it was like all these different European actresses who spoke different languages. So it was like, a scene where in reality someone's speaking in English and someone's speaking in Italian and someone's speaking German and they would dub it all in post. So it's like very awkward and yet genuinely terrifying, which is a mm -hmm. compelling mixture. But yeah, Cannibal Holocaust is part of the Italian horror boom of the 70s. I think it came out in 1980, which is still spiritually in the 70s. Thank you. <laughs> and I remember just being totally enchanted when I first heard about it by the idea that it was so convincing. What I remember of what I read then is that like the authorities in Italy were like, we don't believe you that your actors are still alive. This film is so scary <laughs> and so convincing that you have to bring them like before a judge or something so we can verify that you didn't kill them. And I was like, that sounds great. And <laughs> what I kind of overlooked and my excitement about it was that it was filmed in South America, I believe, specifically so that they could include actual animal death mm -hmm. in the film. Where life is cheap. Is that what it was? Where life is Ugh. cheap. Exactly. That was from Snuff, right? That was the Snuff tagline. Yeah. And this one, they were just like, yeah, life is cheap. So we're going to kill a turtle. And I watched it when I was 18, and I can place that memory in time partly through the fact that I ordered a DVD from Netflix.com. Wow. And was like waiting for it to come in the mail and its little onion skin square, you know, RIP. I'm sure it still is around, but nobody's, you know, they're, they're not in my life anymore. That disc is along the side of the road somewhere, scratched to shit. I once had to request Halloween H2O three different times because the first two <laughs> discs they sent me were shattered. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, I remember. So, you know, I was all excited. I got Cannibal Holocaust in the mail. It's going to be so scary. Yay. And then, like, the only thing I remember about it is the animal death scenes. It's bad. We don't have to describe it, but it's it's not quick. It's not like one of those things where you're like, I'm in nature and I'm blessing this animal for giving me his life or whatever. It's not naked and afraid. It's not naked and afraid. <laughs> it's something else. And I, yeah. And then there's this whole conceit within the movie where the main actor who is played by the guy who helps Debbie go to Dallas and Debbie does <laughs> Dallas. He was trying to bust out of porn and into legitimate film and that worked very briefly and then apparently people found out that he was doing porn in America and they were like no you can't be in Cannibal Holocaust or you were but you can't be in any other wonderful films and it's like wow so like fucking on camera is worse than this wow but <laughs> so there's this reveal at the end where that character is like he's reviewed the footage because the film within a film stories that these documentarians have gone missing because they were making a documentary about the cannibal indigenous people of South America. And then it turns out that they're the real monsters and they're inciting all this violence and they're, I think, committing rape and murder. And so they were killed in retaliation quite justifiably. And our main character 
basically shows the footage, from what I remember, to these TV executives or whatever who want to release it. And they're so horrified that they all agree that they can't show it. So the kind of message, Chelsea, I know you've researched this much more recently than me, but I remember it being basically allegedly a commentary on news media in Italy at the time covering like student terrorism type stuff. And this, I, this idea of like, are they faking footage of violence? Are they inciting violent situations in order to further their ends? So it's like this whole thing that's supposed to be like very thought provoking and like, oh boy, am I the real monster? I feel implicated by this. And it's like, I do feel implicated because I, in my quest to see a scary pretend thing, saw a real thing. And I don't like that I saw that. I don't like that I was part of that dream for a minute there. I would like to have not seen it. Even the actor who went down there said it was like something like a level of cruelty he'd never witnessed and he wasn't sure if he was participating in a snuff film. Like he actually didn't know because (laughs) I think this is so wild, but they did not tell him what movie he was going to be in. His agent was like, come on, I've got a big movie for you. You're going to fly down to South America and, uh, you know, you're going to love this. And until (laughs) they were shooting and it was a terrible, terrible experience for everyone who worked on it. I mean, we've just talked about this at length, but I feel like the precedent that that movie had in my mind was the Blair Witch Project, Yeah. which if your scale of like movies that people freaked out about because they thought they were real is the Blair Witch Project, like it does really say a lot for those guys, which is like, yes, those actors were miserable for several days, but that was it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. They were wet and cold and cranky. They were wet and cold and they had to break down their tents and put their tents back up every night, you know. And we're not trying to minimize your experience because I know all three of you are listening. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. of course. (laughs) We love you. You gave us so much. But at the end of the day, it's I guess it's like it's important to remember that like the best films do come out of like people consenting to what they're going to have to do. And then Mm -hmm. in a way cannibal holocaust feels connected to me far away on on the spectrum but i think on the spectrum of the kind of crazy auteur who gets to do whatever he wants and see his actors like talking props like the thing about stanley kubrick while making the shining having shelly duvall go back up the stairs while crying hysterically for three weeks in a row take after take it's just like We know he didn't use the take he got at the end of three weeks. You know, what's Mm -hmm. the purpose of that except to prove that you can after a certain point? Yeah. So another interesting thing about Cannibal Holocaust and that Blair Witch connection is watching Cannibal Holocaust, it became abundantly clear to me as a diehard Blair Witch Project fan that even down to certain shots, there was just so much homage happening. Mm. So in addition to that, the actors were actually told not to make statements, to keep themselves hidden. And it was the same type of thing with the Blair Witch Project where things were happening outside of just the film, right? Like just like slaughter slash snuff in the 70s, there were things happening. Protests were being organized, you know, potentially by the director himself. There was a world being shaped around these movies. And that's very specific to horror, I think, and specifically to horror that's trying to make itself real. 
wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of telling to me that the first thing that comes to mind for me in terms of like movies and other genres where like it got real are um, Geely (laughs) and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which are I think Mr. and Mrs. Smith did fine. Like people seem to like it, but they were both movies that were like completely overwhelmed by the fact that their leads actually got together while making them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody liked Geely. I haven't actually seen it. It could be good. I really (laughs) want to watch it. I've been meaning to watch it all these years. People who are like teenagers now probably haven't even maybe heard of it, but Geely was the movie that Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez met while doing. And like by the time it came out, the media was so obsessed with and therefore overwhelmed by and done with Benefer as a concept that I think it that Geely really suffered. <laughs> but yeah, like there's something about horror that I think maybe as a genre allows us to have that suspension of disbelief and to kind of buy in in a childlike way and to connect with the part of ourselves that is like, it really happened to my neighbor's cousin. It feels like a lot of this comes back to like preparation, which comes back to terror Mm. management (laughs) theory. It's just like you buy in, like you said, you go in wanting to believe in something and wanting to test your boundaries. And I think The problem comes when you don't consent to it. You're going in thinking that you are watching something pretend and you get to face that and you get to come out of it with Mm -hmm. whatever you take from it. And it just has, I guess it all has to do with consent at the end of the day. It's all about consent, you guys. (laughs) Here's an interesting time that consent went wrong. (laughs) Um, No, not really. But I think that this is really interesting and kind of speaks to your point about consent. But this is what actually happened according to someone who was working the day that they were filming the alternate ending to Snuff, Mm -hmm. where the girl is actually murdered, of course. But he claims that the woman who was obviously a consenting actress for the film who knew she was going to get fake murdered who did not get murdered for the record (laughs) she is alive actually i don't know if she is alive but she was alive after this however while it was happening she had a panic attack because he was acting so well and i mean his acting's not bad Mm -hmm. and he's scary he's a scary dude the director character and is he playing like a manson type character you know he's like hey, baby, like that scene really turned me on. Maybe we could go get turned on together. And she's like, oh, it turned me on too. You know, and like then okay. they go and start like making out and stuff. And then, you know, they start filming and she's like, what are you doing? And all that kind of business. I mean, basically that that's it. It's just that she was freaking out so bad that she ran out of the room, locked herself in the bathroom and was just screaming, this guy's crazy. He's really going to do it. He's really going to do it. Oh, wow. And they had to kind of like sit her down and be like, look, because apparently this guy's kids were there. Ah. (laughs) She's like, he's like, he told her, look, my kids are here. They're running around. We're not really going to kill anybody. That's what a killer would say. And then the kids pull out their kid knives. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense if some guy's like cackling above you and people are filming you and it's just in this like creepy hotel room and you have one day to get it done. I mean, it's a low budget movie. So like the odds are you're going to at least get sexually assaulted, I feel like. So like there's always something worth having a panic attack about if you're in a, a male dominated industry, to be fair. 
mm-hmm. and there's a camera. Yeah. yeah. Although on the other hand, Julia Roberts, I think, got hives when she had to do her first scene in bed with What's-His-Face and Pretty Woman. So Richard Gere? Richard Gere. Did she really? Yeah. I think that, like, <laughs> they had to, like, rub calamine lotion on her or something. Oh. Yeah. Julia. She was a baby. Rotten.com, which is an episode we just put out, is kind of known as like the spiritual successor to Faces of Death. And um, all those early Internet shock websites were kind of in the same vein of just showing the worst brutality possible. A lot of hoaxes, a lot of real images of death, not a lot of actual murder footage, but things that you would have seen on Faces of Death. So did you have a time, because this is before your horror movie self-taught course, (laughs) this would have been in the early 2000s. So what was your relationship to these sites? Did you know about them? Mm -hmm. Did you go to them? So I did go to Rotten.com, but I feel like I stayed in the shallow end of the pool, pretty much. Like I knew that there were like dead people photos on it, right? Stuff like that. Or at least I felt like there were. And I kind of avoided them and I mainly tended toward the sex stuff. Like weirdly, the thing I remember most was that they had a list of the ages at which famous people from history had first had sex as far as anybody knew. And I remember being like, Mary Wollstonecraft, 34, I've got time. (laughs) Miranda, what about you? What was your kind of peripheral? I know you never went to these sites, but did you hear rumors about them? Oh, yeah. I was um, I was on Neopets at the time. (laughs) I got to use computers early because my dad was a high school teacher. So I would go up to the high school and use the computers in the computer lab. And I have no idea how these things came into my consciousness. But I vividly remember hearing about Tub Girl, Lemon Party. I was really upset by Bonsai Kittens. I never saw it, I don't think, but I remember hearing about it and being very upset. And this was like a photoshopped hoax thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was basically just uh, someone doing like a very racist sort of (laughs) joke, I guess. Well, you know, Bonsai Kittens, his name was Dr. Wong Chang, and it was an MIT student who whose identity to this day has never been released as far as I can tell. And I Mm. tried to figure it out. Yeah, so it was just yet another hoax. And so much of Rotten was hoaxes. Uh, We talk about something that you would be really interested in is that the way that Rotten.com became really famous was that they put up a photo called Death of a Princess, and it was supposed to be Princess Diana right after the crash. Mm. And um, Mm. it was proven to be a hoax, but it was picked up by news organizations. And it kind of started like the New York Times wrote about it as the first example of fake news going viral on the Internet. So it's just got this like really interesting history, kind of in the same way that Faces of Death was a lot of hoaxes with a lot of morbid stuff mixed in there that was real like accident photos but a lot of it is like mislabeled so it'll be a picture of one thing but they'll convince you that it's something way more awful than it actually is Mm. so i talked to several of my friends kind of while making the rotten.com episode like what do you remember 
did you go to it, etc. And my best friend Allison, she was like, yeah, wasn't that where you went to see dead babies? (laughs) (laughs) She was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And she's like, that's all I remember about it. And, you know, it's like a lot of things like that. Gosh, I feel like I met. I mean, I. I missed it for a reason, but I'm like, dead babies? I didn't even know there was a dead baby area. (laughs) Well, (laughs) there was a photo that went viral of a man eating a baby, a Chinese man eating a baby, which is still used in like racist COVID memes. Like COVID exists because Chinese people eat babies. COVID exists because Gwyneth Paltrow shook hands with a chef in the movie Contagion. (laughs) All right, we've settled it. (laughs) And uh, so, so this was a fake image and it was like a performance art piece done by an artist in China. It was called Eating People. And it had actually like a really beautiful, no longer do I remember it, reasoning for it to be made. Very well spoken mm. and poetic reason uh, that I wish I remembered. But that I believe would be where the dead baby lore came from. So it's just the one fake dead baby. But that's all you need. I mean, I, that's hmm. my assumption. I, I did not go into the archives of Rotten.com. And again, it's like it feels like a safe fake version of something you actually are getting bombarded with. All Like it's not safe because it's racist mm-hmm, and it can be right. used in propaganda for the next however many decades. Mm-hmm. But it's like a play version in a sense. Because I remember my mom driving me to school like around this time, early 2000s, and seeing a like pro-life um, truck that was decorated with pictures of just like very mm. huge blown up graphic images of pieces of an aborted fetus next to a quarter for scale. And I mean, I feel like to live in America is to be shown a lot of like politically motivated images of quote, dead babies And so to actually be shown something, you know, whose intent maybe was primarily to shock and not to shock you into trying to revoke human rights is in a way better. I also I feel like so much of Rotten.com and that kind of thing in general for me was really about the mythology Mm. more than anything. Like it was just like, oh, this stuff exists somewhere and I'm not going to look at it. But I know that it exists and it changed the way I thought about things Hmm. the same way that I would like not watch horror movies like when I was a preteen, but I would read the entire synopsis because I was realizing that these things existed and and there were these dark corners that I hadn't explored yet. It's like Medusa. It's like I'm not going to look at it straight on, but I'm going to get a pocket mirror out and look around the corner. Right. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your 
your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Yes. And, like, bringing this snuff film idea of murder that is filmed for financial gain for distribution, we have a modern version of that with the internet. And it's called Red Rooms, which I have not really Mm. talked to either of you about. I can't wait. I'm excited. Sarah, have you ever heard of a Red Room? I mean, if you say Red Room to me, it makes me think of the um, scary closet in the Amityville Horror House. Where mm. the, mm-hmm. In the book, mm-hmm. they were like, this is a portal to hell, obviously. Why else would you paint a room red? And it turned out to be just, you know, another casualty of 70s interior decor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a Red Room is a live stream of the torture and murder of a person for the entertainment of others. Uh, Sometimes viewers may interact and sometimes they can type instructions on a screen. We've heard this before. Like in that stupid Diane Lane movie. Which Diane Lane movie? Because I want to go watch that. (laughs) It's called Untraceable. It came out in 2008. And it's like the twist is that a guy is running these red rooms because his dad got killed on TV or something. And so as punishment, he's going to kill more people in the media. As one does, naturally. So, yeah, this is definitely like the snuff legend retold for the Internet era. Mm-hmm. Um, Miranda, had you ever heard you've probably heard at least mention of things like this out on the dark web. Do I spend a lot of time on the dark web, Chelsea? You're not supposed to tell anyone. I'm saying, have you heard about these things occurring on the dark web? I haven't really. I feel like if I hear the term red room, I clock it as something else. So I've never really thought about it. I feel like I've seen movies where similar things happen. Okay. So the red room urban legend is I feel like it's kind of obvious, right? It makes me think of something like Saw, right? Or like Hostel. (laughs) Hostel is a better example where there are these rich, you know, elite ring ding, ding, ding out there somewhere who are paying to watch people be tortured. That's been done in movies for a while and it's not like specific to Red Rooms. But Red Rooms themselves started with a Japanese urban legend. And Hmm. the urban legend goes like this. You're browsing on your computer and you suddenly get a ominous pop-up. And the pop-up says, (laughs) with just black text, says, do you like the Red Room? Which is very scary. I love this. I'm so scared. Do you like the Red Room? Which is then accompanied by a pre-recorded, sinister, creepy voice asking, 
do you like the Red Room? Um, and I've heard it. It's very scary. This is bad advertising. <sighs> I just get pop-up ads that say, this game will make you come in 30 seconds. <laughs> I get ones for uh, all of those terrifying mobile game apps. Like, oh you know what God. I'm talking about, Miranda and with I watch over games. With a little Nemo fish that you have to rescue from sharks. Uh, that's a nice version of what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of like yeah. the weird dress up ones where you have to oh, choose yeah. the clothes and they're all just very disturbing and like Elsa Gate kind of vibes. Yeah. yeah. We get a lot of those. And I get more of those because I watch them because they're so <laughs> weird. And then I just get yeah, more. we watched a whole compilation the other day and then it was like, well, this is over for us. I got a mobile, or, yeah, a mobile game ad. There's a lot of weird shit happening over there, but where it was like, you like inflate this hot girl's belly. Because oh. it's like, and that's how babies are made. But oh, it's also no. like she seems to be turned on by it. No. It's fi- it's this like they, I, no. this is a whole other conversation. Yeah. Okay. So you go to close the pop up, and you can't. It keeps popping up, and more and more keep popping up every time you try to close them, and the voice keeps coming. So it's just almost like you have a virus, right? And picture this early two mm-hmm. thousands pop up. <laughs> you know what they look like? They just keep popping up, keep popping up. And then eventually they fill your screen and it turns red. And it's then flooded with all the names of the past victims. And then no one knows what happens next. But everyone is found dead with blood covering all of the walls, like painted all over the room. And often people say that it's from the person actually committing suicide by cutting their own throat. And then once you get that pop-up, that's the end. Oh, Oh, they really lost me. (laughs) Because this reminds me of the Momo thing. Very much. Which Uh was also like that Rotten.com thing based on, like, never make scary art, apparently, because somebody's going to put it on the internet out of context. But, like, (laughs) like, I wonder about which cultures create, like, the internet is going to force you to commit suicide myths versus the internet is going to murder you myths which are similar yet different but that's a really interesting question yeah i mean it's another way to ignore guns as a component of suicidality right right it's momo it's momo (laughs) that's the problem momo is the problem there are millions of momos all over this country flat you know children have access to momos it's an elite (laughs) ring of momos Okay, so in the early 2000s, someone created one of those flash animations that we all remember so well. And it was about this urban legend of the Red Room. And it was a GeoCities page. And it Uh was just kind of acting out the legend, right? Like, so it had a bunch of pop-ups pop up. I watched it. It was creepy. There was some other footage of, like, the room changing. And, you know, it was creepy. And the music was creepy. And the voice was definitely scary and altered, saying, you know, do you like the Red Room in Japanese? So the question then became... Was this urban legend real or like the Blair Witch Project was the urban legend created by this Flash Project saying that there was an urban legend, right? Because this went totally Hmm. viral and became a really successful website like any of the other ones we were talking about. It's almost it's like astroturfing, but just without a political goal. Mm -hmm. To be like, there's this urban legend. Because it does make it creepier than just being like, here's my idea for a cartoon. So from there, it gets really scary and in kind of in a Slender Man vibe. So 
in 2004, there was this extremely like sensationalized crime that happened in Japan where an 11-year-old girl murdered a 12-year-old classmate. And they ended up talking a lot about how this girl was a big fan of this flash animation of the Red Room. Mm. So it became this like self-perpetuating myth as these things sometimes happen. And it became that conversation of is the Internet causing bad things to happen? Is the Internet making kids do bad things? And this was like a big example. Was this Red Room kind of snuff legend? So... This goes on for a while, right? This idea of the Red Room, it collects its lore through YouTubers making up shit and exploring things and the dark web comes in and that really starts to be the place that we hear that all the bad things happen, right, is the dark web, the deep web, which is largely just people buying drugs, if that anymore. It's like drugs and and crypto, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah, And like bad porn, for sure. Like illegal pornography. And like stuff that can kill you, but, you know, less magically. Yeah. Like there are no hitmen, as far as anyone knows. It's just a bunch of people saying, yeah, I'll totally do that hit for you if you give me this money. And then they just disappear and don't do the hit. You know, it's like that happens all the time. So there are people that would like a hit, but not people that will do it. So this is so weird and like just a whole other level. So all the way in 2015, after these stories of the dark web have been circulating for a long time, there was a rumor that went around 4chan and Reddit (laughs) <laughs> the real dark web um, <laughs> that uh, and all these different message boards that there was this mysterious group that had captured several ISIS fighters and that they had promised to basically perform a live torture and murder of these people on the dark web. And so, like, it was on a Saturday morning. There was an actual website that was saying, come back here Saturday morning, and this is going to happen in the bacon room, which is just so gross. Yeah, really, really, really gross. And... Basically, okay, so the small portion of the the promise of what you were going to get at this Red Room was expect fun games, mingle and torture as promised, all interactive, still fully free. No one likes mingling. This is a bad ad. What what about we will make at least the first hour family friendly? What? What? And explicitly warn you before things get violent. So I don't know what that would mean. This is so weird. Yeah. And then we won't stop under any circumstances. Torture must become death. So there were a lot of people waiting for this for like a week. And there was a countdown clock. You know, it was publicized on like Vice was the only place that was writing about it. You can still find that. But moments like moments seconds before this clock was about to run out the site just went down and there was a link to some really grainy video but it was definitely not even trying to show a murder it was just some I, i didn't find out what the video was but this description from vice was a not very murdery video (laughs) 
but yeah, they looked into it. It was just an elaborate hoax. The site went down and then immediately put up something that said that it was because of an FBI seizure and that, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, the FBI is very against torture, famously. I mean, I'm shocked that this wasn't a viral marketing campaign for like an energy drink or something. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't go very well for them. Yeah. You never know in the energy drink market. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really all that there has been of Red Rooms. I think it's really interesting mm. because in our Haunted House episode, we talked about, you know, there was a lot of snuff kind of involved in McKamey Manor, right? Because it's like these mm -hmm. people go to this haunted house and it's free, but you know, you might get murdered, you have to sign a contract, and they would have fake cameras up saying that everything that was happened was being live streamed to an elite group of people in Vegas that are like betting on how you're going to die or telling them what right. to do. So there's this kind of angle in that and in the snuff universe of this elite group that is the one that these videos are being made for, which I think is obviously a cornerstone of so much conspiracy thought. That contradicts everything we know about how to make media profitably, which is that <laughs> the goal is not to make a boutique production for a small elite group of consumers, but to make young Sheldon. And I don't know, just on a, on a pragmatic level, the idea that there's like big money in making something for any tiny group. Like I find it important to emphasize, and maybe this is obvious enough to me that I don't repeat it enough, that like the Red Room idea, the snuff film idea, like it isn't unbelievable to me because I have some kind of like core belief that people are better than that. I really don't. I just think that we tend to be horrible in a way that is disorganized and also based on believing that we're doing either what we have to do mm -hmm. or what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. It also, I guess, feels relevant to mention that this was the moment of Son of Sam. This was in mm. New York City specifically. This is the moment of America becoming conscious of the idea of the serial killer and starting to use the term serial killer, which wasn't in circulation before the late 70s. And... I don't know. I guess like I like to reiterate that like we're kind of making light of a set of beliefs that now seems pretty obviously without evidence and even to have led to a bigger, much more dangerous conspiracy theory. But I do feel like part of this came from the recognition that like society is very violent towards women. And mm -hmm. I feel like for as long as we have to express that realization through inventing a very scary and, you know, can't be that many people. It's a subculture, but it's not part of the monoculture kind of, it's the snuff filmmakers, it's the Satanists, whatever. I think it's constructive to point out the, like, logical failings of those theories, but also to recognize that, you know, people have come up with them, I think, a lot of the time because there just hasn't been space to just be like, all of this needs to go. This is all <laughs> dangerous. And sometimes you're not listened to unless you over-exaggerate mm -hmm. what's going on. Like if you, yeah. if you're, you know, children being molested isn't enough, it has to be by Satanists. And then we say, oh, okay, we'll pay attention now. Right, because you can't point the finger at, at your pastor because then nobody right. will believe you. But if you point the finger at a Satanist, 
or if you say the pastor is actually a Satanist, then it's like, oh, so you're not implicating the normal way. You're implicating the opposite of normal way. And I guess like maybe it helps to also see these wild flights of illogic as like the closest that society could get to seeing the real problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it all yeah. comes back to the terror of our own mortality. Yeah. Correspondent. That's me. Well, Sarah, thank you for being here to share all of your knowledge of snuff and your feelings <laughs> about it. Thank you for having me here and listening to my thoughts about the corners of the internet that I have been thinking about for 20 years, <laughs> apparently. Thank you for making my misspent youth something I could do something constructive with and it's also i guess it, i love talking to both of you so much i can't wait till we can all you know hold hands walking down the street together <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice way to end an episode about snuff films <laughs> this was american hysteria make sure you listen to you're wrong about and you are good wherever you get your podcasts and thank you to terror management correspondent Miranda Zickler for co-hosting with me. We're taking next week off, but if you don't want to wait for more content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash American Hysteria. And next week, you'll get a brand new episode of Hysteria Home Companion, our talk show where Miranda and I discuss all the hottest gossip from the American Hysteria cutting room floor. We will be joined by our very special guest and team member, Riley Smith, so that we can discuss all the urban legends and conspiracy theories that have collected around the Manson family. So if that's up your alley, you can join at patreon.com slash American Hysteria for next week's Hysteria Home Companion and all the episodes that came before. This episode has sound design by Clear Camo Studios and was produced by Miranda Zickler and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we will be back with a topic that I think you are just gonna love or hate. I guess we'll see. Have a Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.